This is the Short-Term Parking Podcast, and I'm Jack Prebeck. This uh, digital world can be a bit discouraging sometimes when one goes through the effort to publish different media, different content. The statistics, the tabulations are there. For you to see at any time and you can see just how many people have taken part in listening to or viewing your content and many of the time while doing several of the different projects that I've been working on. Many is the time when I've thought, well, this is, this is just, uh, there's no point to it. Nobody is uh, listening to me spew my opinions and vast knowledge as I send it out into the cosmos. Nobody's tuning in. And then... Usually, right at the point I'm about to hang it up, there will be a little blip on the statistical radar. And here and there, a few people are checking it out. And so I continue. And part of the reason I'm doing this anyway, part of the reason I started this is uh, just to document some things for my son in case when he gets older he would like to tap into a little bit of what the old man was thinking. I did not have a conventional education, a normal education. And a lot of times I forget that others have not had a similar a similar path to the formation of thinking. They didn't have similar experiences. So a lot of times I get frustrated because I forget that most people have been exposed to different things than I have. Starting out in school I quickly became bored with the whole affair and as it went along it was year after year just repetition of the same things over and over again and it seemed like there was never really any in-depth research or deep dives into any of the subjects that really mattered For instance, when I was in high school, I'd realized that uh, we'd never, in history class, we never even had touched on World War II or World War I. It seemed like pretty important events, seemed like things that shaped the existence that we were living in at that time. And there were many other things like that that bothered me about school 
So when I was 16, I quit. And I actually took my GED and enrolled in a junior college. And I spent about a year taking classes at the junior college. And then we had a unfortunately terrible winter and this school was 45 minutes away from where I lived so it was hard for me to get there on a daily basis and I actually had to drop out but while I was there I was studying music which is one of the things that really interested me and had some music theory classes music appreciation classes, you know, the history of music and such. And anyway, the next spring, after I dropped out, I stumbled into an arrangement where I was offered a place to live with a roommate. So I was officially out of the out of my parents' house and also kind of wandered my way into a job selling timeshare condominiums, vacation timeshares, which would seem like an odd choice nowadays, but for one thing, you need to remember that I, well, you don't need to remember, you don't know. I was, uh, I looked a lot older than my actual age. And I dressed a lot older. And in the early 80s, there were a lot of things, opportunities for people to get into various types of sales positions that didn't require really any experience or training the kinds of things people used to call high pressure sales and these uh, opportunities were open for anybody and if a person could go in and sell make the company some money they would uh, continue to have a job and probably make pretty good money at it and these were self-employment positions So, I entered into this world of high-pressure sales, as they called it, and I didn't do really well at it. I didn't excel, but I made enough sales here and there to make more money, considerably more money than I would at other jobs that were available to a 18 year old with no uh, track record, no experience. And there were people from all walks of life that were salespeople. There were a lot of uh, retired military guys that had uh, put in their 20 or 20 years and had a retirement set up and they just uh, wanted something to uh, 
make extra money on top of that. There were some genuine hustlers. People that had uh, had made their living as con men and had gone straight, so to speak. There were uh, a couple drug dealers that were there to uh, to supplement their income as well as show some legitimate income. And there were several truly dedicated salespeople, lifers, folks that had made an in-depth study into the psychology of the deal. And these were people that were just fascinated with the whole process. And the deal was like a drug to them almost. And consequently, as of course, all of these people that I was working alongside were many years older than me. I uh, would glean little uh, bits of wisdom and knowledge from them. Because in that type of job, there's often a lot of uh, sitting around time in between when you're uh, dealing with clients and you have the opportunity to engage in some interesting conversations. Anyway, I did that for almost a couple of years. And actually at the same time, I went back to college for uh, another couple of semesters and I was uh, supplementing or I was paying for college that way actually. But I became tired of it. Uh, I didn't enjoy the manipulation that you had to uh, master in order to be successful at it. And besides, I was interested in music. And as I was going to college as a theory composition major, this would have been in officially my second year of college, I became a little disillusioned with that as well because it seemed like we were spending a large amount of time on 18th century music. And at the same time, I was studying jazz music with some private teachers. And I, I recognized that the language that was used with jazz was a lot different from what was used in the study of what they called legitimate or serious music. And I also realized that these uh, jazz musicians were operating on a very high level mentally as well as the uh, physical operation of their chosen instruments. And at the same time, I was listening to a lot of uh, rock and roll and blues. And I thought that really what I needed to do was get out in front of people and play. And, and once again, 
I stumbled into an opportunity. Uh, there was a band leader that had somehow gotten a hold of my parents' phone number and left a message with my mom that they were looking for, they were a country band, a country rock band that was getting ready to leave town on Monday. And this was a Friday when I got the message. And they were looking for a bass player. And they heard that I could play bass, which was odd because I had... Uh, I had no instrument. I had no bass guitar. I had never played bass. And I knew about it. I mean, I knew the theory behind it, where where to put the fingers. So I ran to the music store, took some gear that I acquired, a Fostex four-track cassette recorder, my first multi-track recorder and a couple of other things a Stratocaster I went to a music store called Sounds Great in Springfield Missouri and I traded that stuff for a bass guitar and amplifier it was a Ibanez bass and I don't recall what the amplifier was and I drove up to a place called Warsaw, Missouri, which was on Lake of the Ozarks. And I joined this band. This was on a Saturday. And I actually went out and played a gig with this band that Saturday night. Did four hours in a crazy honky-tonk. And there were fights and bottles smashing and crazy drunk hillbillies and it was quite a scene and this was on a Saturday night and the following Monday I left with those guys in a LTD station wagon pulling a horse trailer and we headed out to Mitchell South Dakota to play at the Holiday Inn for two weeks and I remember thinking well I'll give this a couple of weeks and uh, if I totally hate it I can always go back to school I can always just go back and act like I was uh, sick for a couple of weeks and just dive right back in where I was and that didn't happen. I stayed on the road. And I stayed out there for an extended period of time. And played with lots of different working bands. There were a few times where there were breaks in my road activity. I taught guitar at a music store a couple of friends of mine owned. I did that for... I don't know exactly how long, maybe a year. And there were a couple of times, once or twice, when I had to take some uh, straight day job for a few weeks just to uh, keep money flowing when a band broke up. But for the most part, I was on the road for a good long while.
it was a job where I could uh, I could practice guitar all day if I wanted to go out and play my four hours at night even have some drinks at work and a lot of freedom it wasn't great money but it was cash money at the end of the week the band leader would hand me cash and through this through all of this I also made a effort a definite effort to try and continue my education whenever I got to a town a new town or the next town I would seek out a bookstore and back then you could usually find a used bookstore and I would read voraciously I didn't watch TV and even you know back then by the time we got done working get back to the hotel or the band house there usually wasn't anything on TV so if I wasn't practicing guitar or playing the actual gig I was reading and I read novels and history books and biographies and almost anything I could get my hands on really I wasn't interested in politics the politics of the day I wasn't interested in pop culture other than the songs I had to learn for the band I uh, existed in a sort of uh, individual satellite orbit of all of that stuff. In 1992, I was in a band called Homegrown, which would be considered a cross between a honky-tonk country type of thing, Merle Haggard, Waylon Jennings kind of music, and southern rock jam band sort of stuff and we found ourselves a lot of the time in the northern midwest places like the dakotas minnesota montana wyoming idaho even and there were a lot of uh small towns mostly I mean, if you get to, uh, you know, at that time in Wyoming, Montana, even the large towns there would be considered small towns by a lot of people's standards. And some of the places were truly small towns that only had what they, they would call bars and banks. We played the bars and banks circuit. But there were a lot of bars out in this part of the world. And we played every night. Usually played Monday through Saturday and traveled on Sunday. So, I'm up in uh, rural Montana or Wyoming, one of them. And I don't recall exactly. But I was out in that part of the country and I heard about this thing over in Idaho, 
the Ruby Ridge incident, which at the time hardly anybody had heard about. But where I was, it was what everybody was talking about. And I remember I called my dad and I talked to him and I brought up this thing, this Ruby Ridge, and he'd never heard of it. And this is an example of, you know, you uh, assume everybody else is on the same wavelength, is hearing the same stuff, is hearing the same news. People think their weather is the weather, that sort of deal. Well, he'd never heard of it, and I was trying to describe it to him, and he just uh, he reacted with disbelief. And like I said, before that time, I wasn't interested in politics, and I wasn't really following what the government was doing. And that really, that incident really opened my eyes to the fact that those guys, the government, weren't necessarily always operating on our behalf. So the next year, I found myself in another band. It was called the Matadors from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And we were in Panama City, Florida. And we were playing... For an extended period for us, it was what we called a house gig. We had, we ended up being in Panama City, the old part of Panama City, not the uh, Panama City Beach, by the way. We were there for around 11 months. And during this time, the whole Waco thing unfolded. And this was... One of those deals where CNN, this was one of the first things where CNN was showing a lot of coverage of it daily. And I sat in my motel room every afternoon having my coffee and I would watch what was going on at Waco. And a lot of times I would be talking to my dad on the phone as I watched. And there was a point where right after Janet Reno had been put in charge, she was being interviewed on the TV, and she said, we are going to tighten the perimeter. And I was on the phone with my dad right at that moment, and I said, oh my God. What she just said there, that is uh, military speak, and this is no longer a siege. They're now going to get aggressive. And a couple of days later, I watched uh, that whole thing go down live in the afternoon. And probably this the whole, you know, it was orchestrated to go on in the afternoon when a lot of people weren't watching. And I saw them take the tanks and bust the holes and the fire started. And the whole thing was real surreal, very surreal. And it added to my distrust of the government that, like I said, I had never really considered much too far before that.
And then we had Oklahoma City, which was another thing that, for me, had a lot of red flags. But after that, I had found my I'd found my life situation had changed. I had gotten off the road for various reasons, and I had uh, started making attempt to settle down, as they say. And I really got away from thinking about this kind of stuff because I was more involved in uh, the day-to-day things that I had to do to try and live a normal life, not on the road, and eke out a meager existence. And during this period, I did start paying attention to politics somewhat, local politics, local elections. I registered to vote. I actually registered as a Republican. And I'm not really going to go into what led me to that because I am not a member of either party. And if you've been listening at all, you will know that I consider myself an anarchist. But at that time, it made sense to me. And then 9-11 happened. And I, like most of the country, was caught up in a sort of pseudo-patriotic fervor. And I, like a lot of people, most people I knew, were for the idea of retribution and going to war. And I, like most people, bought into the official government story of what happened. But it didn't take me long to start questioning the official narrative. And I was not alone in that among my circle of friends and people I talked with, most of whom were of the liberal persuasion, consider themselves Democrats. It didn't add up. And what I did was immerse myself in some research. I looked into a lot of things that people call conspiracy theories. I watched a movie called The Century of the Self and I first learned about Edward Bernays and I looked into him further and I read his books. I watched Aaron Russo's movie America from Freedom to Fascism. I started looking into the Federal Reserve read Edward G. Griffin's book. I read Tragedy and Hope by Carol Quigley, which is actually a highly detailed history book that goes into what really happened in the lead up 
to the First World War and the Second World War and all of the surrounding economic conditions and points out that the truly powerful elite figures in this world bet on both sides in those big wars. And of course, Carol Quigley's book also points to the existence and importance of secret societies. I read uh, Henry Kissinger and big new Brzezinski and the Trilateral Commission and the Council on Foreign Relations and their influence on the grand scheme of things and the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers and the quasi-charitable foundations that influence and control culture and all the black ops operations and Ted Kaczynski and the dirty IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and the WHO, and the League of Nations, and the United Nations, and the World Bank, and Fractional Reserve, and Bilderberg, and Bretton Woods, and Bohemian Grove, and on and on and on, and a bunch of stuff, a bunch more stuff, and how it all ties together. And for a while, I was going around shouting from the rooftops about all this stuff to anybody that would listen because I couldn't believe the things that were true. And some of what I got was bad information. And I looked into it further and clarified it when I could. And I was going around and telling everybody about it and saying, you need to look into this. And I got to a point where I digested in my mind all of this information from all of these various things, these various sources. And I came to the conclusion that there is no unified grand conspiracy. There isn't some cabal of a few people somewhere that are controlling our every movement and deciding the destiny of humanity. But there are powers that be. There are elite people that control most of the world's wealth and resources. And that people really do need to look into that stuff. Or not. And I also think that at some point there may come a subtle tipping point and we may evolve into a better society, maybe along the lines of what Samuel Edward Conkin III laid out. Maybe just something where people adopt the non-aggression principle as a way of life. 
and value their freedom as well as others' personal freedoms. Some, some sort of decentralization of power. That's where, after all of the things that I have researched, read, consumed, ingested, that's where I think things are eventually going to lead someday. But... As I look around, I now, right now, often forget that most people have not read about all of that stuff, looked into all of that stuff. Most people don't have knowledge of all of that stuff. And a lot of the people that do are somehow tied to the power structure whatever you want to call it and they don't want to really enlighten everybody else so I forget that not everybody has absorbed all of the things that I briefly referenced earlier and so I look around at this era the covid era and the way that people react and the seeming hysteria that's being promoted that everybody everybody else is looking at it through their own filters they have their own history to look back on and try and figure out what's happening now and what will happen next. And frankly, I found myself here in the last couple weeks, especially becoming increasingly frustrated at how as a society, we are moving forward. But I've had a epiphany of sorts in that there's nothing I can do about it and that what I really need to do is figure out how to enjoy the day today and that's what I'm doing I'm enjoying the day today And the things that people are fighting about right now, they aren't my fights. And it isn't about, for me, one group against another group. And little things like wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. If my family wants me to wear a mask when I go to Walmart or if Walmart demands that I wear a mask when I go to Walmart or if the local government mandates that I wear a mask when I go out or if the federal government mandates that I wear a mask, well, I'll just wear a mask. 
And when we get to the other side of this thing, I'm not going to look back and say, boy, I was on the right side of history there, or boy, I really messed that up. When we get through to the other side, things are going to be different. Things will have changed. For the better or the worse. And I cannot control how those things will change. And if you're taking sides on something, if you're on team A or team B, then I support you and I hope you are trying to make the best of the day today. And that's really all I have. I'm, a, I'm weary of the situation. I, I can't really watch the news. Uh, I'm having, you know, a lot of the things that I would usually uh, spend my time listening to or watching just on TV. I have a hard time with it at this point. I have found myself uh, immersing myself in music, you know, as much as I can in that instead of uh, listening to a podcast or watching a TV show, I uh, listen to music instead, instead of reading or watching the news, I'll have some music going on in the background. I'll listen to music while I'm watching, washing the dishes or working out with my kettlebell. Been making some music and I find great comfort in that. And I truly hope that there is something out there in this world that you can find great comfort in that will help occupy your time and your mind until until we make it through whatever this is. So I'm going to conclude this episode of short-term parking. If you get a chance, uh, look me up on Twitter, Instagram, Jack Preback Music on YouTube, Jack Preback at Bandcamp, if you're interested in downloading, purchasing a download of the music that I have released in the last little while here, there's two albums. One is called Trapped in the Song Place and the other one is called Trespass. And as I always do, I'm going to leave, uh, leave you with some music here. And this is a track off the album Trespass. And it is called Refuge. So thanks for tuning in. It means a great deal to me that there are some people listening. And with that, Refuge. <laughs>